All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, uh, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you that you have revealed to us who you are in the scriptures, that we can study your ways, study your character, study your great acts in history, study your grace and your love and your justice. Give us hearts and minds that desire to hear from you, and we pray that you would accompany our meditation on your holy word with the presence of your spirit to be our guide and to be our teacher. Open these words to us. Illumine these words for us. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we are talking about an important topic in the Christian life called hermeneutics. And uh, if you don't know that word, hermeneutics, it basically means the study of interpretation. How do you interpret the Bible? Which I think for most of us, if, you're, uh, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably at some point had a conversation where you said to someone, well, you know, it says... I believe this because it says this in the Bible, and the person responds and says, yes, but that's just your interpretation. We all know, Christians know, even non-Christians know that the Bible is a complicated book. There are lots of different ways of interpreting the Bible. Who's to say which interpretation is the right one? Well, hermeneutics tells us That each of us, when we come to the Bible, we bring a lens through which we read the Bible that causes us to see certain things, causes us to look for certain things when we're reading the Bible that jump out at us. So, for example, if you have a feminist lens, you're going to come to the Bible and see all the passages that talk about elevating the role of women in society, and you say, those are the most important verses of the Bible. Those are the ones that jump out at you. Or, you know, maybe if you're a social conservative kind of person, you're going to see all the verses about family values, and you say, oh, this is so important, our culture needs to hear these verses from the Bible, or maybe you're an environmentalist, and all the verses about creation, you're going to say, oh, you know, where God's caring for the rock badger and for the sparrows and stuff like that, you know, those are the most important verses. Um, Your lens shapes what you look for and what jumps out at you in the Bible, 
All of us have a lens. Some of you might be thinking, oh, I just read the Bible, just the pure words. No, you don't. You just don't know what your lens is. Who is to say which lens is the right one? Well, in our church, our church believes that the Bible itself gives us a lens to read it with. And that lens comes at two crucial moments in the Bible. The first crucial moment is at the very beginning of the Bible when you'd expect in any book that you're reading, you know, whenever you read an essay or something we learned in middle school, every essay should have a thesis statement that tells you what the thing you're going to read is about. The Bible does the same thing. In Genesis chapter 3, after God created the world, humanity disobeyed God, and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, one of the first things we hear out of God's mouth is that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. This cryptic statement that says there is going to be a man who's going to come and he's going to undo all the evil in the world. It comes at the very beginning of the Bible, and that's telling you this whole story that you're going to read for all these pages is a story about that man who's going to come and fix everything. So you should be looking for him as you read through the story. It tells you up front. Then, later, the man comes. And that man, of course, is Jesus. And Jesus' most important act was his death on the cross. And then he rose again from the dead on the third day. And on the day he was risen from the dead, there's this great scene in the Gospel of Luke where he meets these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're talking about all that's happened in Jerusalem. And, and Jesus gives them this famous sermon that we don't get to hear. We all wish we could hear the sermon that Jesus gave on the day of resurrection. But this is how Luke... Luke uh, summarizes it. He says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures. You hear that? This is Jesus' interpretation. The things concerning himself. So Jesus went through all the Old Testament, all of Moses, all the prophets, the Old Testament, and showed that the whole thing was about him. And so what should be our lens for reading the Bible? When you read through the Bible, what should be the thing we're looking for? What's the thing that's popping out at us all the time? The Bible says our lens should be Jesus. He's who we should see everywhere. And that's not just true in the New Testament. When Jesus actually came as a baby and he lived and taught, and you know, it's not just in the New Testament, but even in the thousands of years that led up to the New Testament before that that's recorded in the Old Testament— even the Old Testament is about him. And this passage that we're studying this morning is a great example of that. It's, it was written over 1,400 years before Jesus was even born. And yet, it points profoundly to him. And so this morning, I want to explore what does it mean to see Jesus in especially the Old Testament. To read the Old Testament and say the Old Testament is about our Savior. And in this passage, we see three pictures in particular that tell us that this is about the gospel and about Christ. And these are the three pictures, the courtroom, the substitution, and the water. So this morning, we're going to go through each of those pictures and see this passage that you maybe read and thought seemed like an obscure little passage in the middle of Exodus 17 has great insight to lead us to who Jesus is. So three things this morning. The first is this, the courtroom. Now, if you have not been with us in the study of Exodus, we're in Exodus chapter 17. What's happened so far is that Israel, the nation of Israel were slaves in Egypt, 
And God, through Moses, has delivered them out of slavery. And then now for the last few chapters, they've been in the wilderness. And they found themselves with a shortage of water and food. And one of the most important things to understand about this passage that we just read was, is the judicial setting of it. I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 1 where it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, uh, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that one of the words that's been repeated over the last couple chapters is the word grumbling. So they've been in the wilderness, and they don't have any water, they don't have any food, and the word that we keep hearing over and over again is that the people of Israel were grumbling against Moses and against the Lord. Now, all of a sudden, in this passage, the word changes from grumbling to quarreling. Now, when you hear that word quarreling, you think of two people arguing back and forth, but that's not really what's happening in the scene. What's happening is that the people of Israel have brought an official protest against Moses, that he has wronged them. And you can see that that kind of, uh, they are calling for a trial. You can see it more explicitly in verse 4 where it says, So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now again, when we hear that word stoning, what you picture is a kind of mob violence where, you know, people are picking up rocks and they're attacking Moses. But in the Old Testament, stoning was the punishment for a capital crime. So that's what they're saying is that Moses has brought them out and he is now killing them and they want to punish him. Moses is on trial and they want to execute him. And so like other important parts of the Bible, the scene here is a courtroom. Now, I think for most of us as kind of modern people living in Bellingham, um, the legal aspect of the God of the Bible makes us uncomfortable. You know, the Bible talks about God as a judge, and he punishes the wicked. And we kind of, you know, when we're reading the Bible, we're like, I don't like this part as much. And so we, you know, pass on to it. But, uh, but when we think about our spiritual lives, uh, you know, or, or, and part of that is because when we think of our spiritual lives, the last thing we want to think about is judgment. You know, for many of us, we think, you know, I have all this anxiety in my life, and then now I'm going to come to the Bible, and I'm going to talk about God as a judge. I mean, that's going to cause me even more anxiety to think about God's always thinking about what I'm doing and analyzing what I'm doing, and he's a judge. And so we just say, I don't even want to think about that. But if we really pay attention to it, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll see that judgment is a huge part of our spiritual lives whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian. Um, Because first of all, we may say that we're not comfortable with God being our judge. We are comfortable with us being God's judge, though. And uh, we have no problem voicing our complaints about how the God of the Bible handles himself, right? So, for example, I put a quote for you on page three in your bulletin. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a, a famous little essay called God in the Dock, And Lewis puts it this way, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. 
he is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being a God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. This reversal of roles is precisely what's happening in this passage that we're studying. Um, God is not, you can't see God. So it's very hard to put him on trial. So instead of putting God on trial, we'll take the next best thing is Moses, who's his servant or his representative. We're going to put Moses on trial. And Moses reminds him and says, listen, you're quarreling with me. You're protesting immense. You are putting God to the test. You are putting God on trial. And I think a second thing about judgment is not only that we're actually very comfortable judging God, that kind of judgment we're fine with, but the second aspect of judgment is that it's true that judgment causes a tremendous amount of anxiety in our lives. Um, you know, how many of you, maybe on a daily basis, deal with thoughts like, I'm a failure, I'm worthless, I'm dirty, I'm a terrible person, no one likes me. How many of us, that's a constant part of our life? Or conversely, maybe you have things like, actually, I'm so much better than other people, and I'm so smart, I'm so godly. These are all verdicts. These are all judgments. Our mind is a courtroom. Your inner life is a courtroom, and it's whether judgments from yourself, maybe it's from other people, maybe it's from your family, maybe it's from God, that's why we're always saying to one another, don't judge me. Why are, you, why are we so sensitive about judgment? It's a, because it's a huge part of our spiritual lives. The verdict and evaluation of your life is one of the most pressing issues in, each, in our souls, in your souls. It will do us no good to ignore the question of judgment or to pretend like it's not important. You were made to stand before God and have him pronounce a judgment on you. You were made for that. Your soul knows it. You can't escape it. And so settling the question of judgment should be of the utmost priority in our spiritual lives, settling that question. Now, I think for many of us, the reason we probably don't want to talk about judgment is because we have some unease about, I'm not really sure I would pass the evaluation or the test. I mean, maybe God's standard is impossible to even reach. You know, it's such a high bar and I'm constantly failing it. And so um, that is why the next question in this passage is so important. What is God going to do? The Israelites have done this reversal where they said, no, we're God's judge. We're putting God on trial. He has not met our standard. And how is God going to respond to that? The answer is surprising. And that's the second picture that we see in this passage, not just the courtroom, but the substitution. And you see this in verse 5. Look at what it says in verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Now what... What's happening here is the Lord is saying to Moses, okay, I want you to go right in front of the people where everyone can see this, and we're going to have a trial. They want to have a trial, we're going to have a trial. And there's two details that tell us that. First of all, you see the mention of, he says, bring the elders with you. 
If you know about the elders in the Old Testament and the Bible, who the elders were, they were the judges. So if you had a conflict in, you know, in the people of Israel, someone wronged you, you bring it to the elders. And they would have a little court case and they would decide that. And so uh, the Lord is saying, bring the elders and they're going to be the witnesses for the court case. And then second, Moses has his staff in his hands. Now, in the ancient world, the staff was a symbol of judgment. You know, the person with the staff is the person with authority. And the staff was also used to execute the judgment. You know, so if you committed a crime, the punishment would often be a, a beating, right? And they would take a rod, and the staff is how they would execute that punishment. And this staff in particular was the staff that uh, Moses had used when the Lord was judging the, the Egyptians. Remember, he took the staff and he hit the Nile, struck the Nile River with it, and the whole Nile River turns to blood. And so you imagine the scene. The people are planning to stone God's representative because he has not done what they wanted. And the Lord says, okay, Moses, we're going to have a trial. Walk in front of the people, get the elders, and get the staff that I gave you. What are the people going to be thinking about that? Are the plagues that went, came upon the Egyptians and now about to come upon us? The trial has begun. The, God, the great God, the judge, is coming upon us. It's when we realize that trial scene that this next verse is totally shocking. And you see what the Lord says in verse 6. Behold, he says this to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. Amazingly, the Lord responds to this people who so arrogantly say, we're your judge. You're not our judge. We're your judge. He responds to them by saying, the rod of judgment is not going to fall on my people. It's going to fall on me. He goes and stands before Moses with the staff. And the Lord says to Moses, I will stand before you for judgment. And Moses strikes the rock. And of course, if you know other places in the Old Testament, the Lord is called a rock, right? In Deuteronomy 32, 4, it's, it says about the Lord, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. Or in Psalm 62, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in him, he only is my rock and my salvation. He strikes the rock, who is the Lord sitting on top of the rock, taking the judgment in the people's place. There's a substitution. Also, the Apostle Paul, who read this passage in, he, in 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking about Israel wandering in the wilderness during this time, and this is what the Apostle Paul says. All drank, all the Israelites drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Jesus. And what this tells us is that this whole strange scene in the wilderness in the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus, and it's a picture of the gospel. And so when you go to the gospels, what do you find? You find this exact same substitution, right? Jesus is the righteous one who's come to save his people, just like Moses, saved his people out of slavery to sin. And yet, who's put on trial? Remember, if you go read the gospels, what you see is this a whole courtroom scene. The final chapters are all this courtroom. There's the corrupt chief priests and Pontius Pilate, the, you know, the pagan Roman ruler, and they're putting Jesus on trial. Jesus should be judging them. <laughs> they're the wicked ones. They're the ones who should be punished. And yet they're put in the place of the judge. 
And Jesus is put in the place of the judged one. And he's struck down when he dies on the cross. And when Jesus is struck on the cross, what comes out of him? Blood and water. He is the rock. He is the supreme rock. The punishment that they deserved is placed on Jesus when he dies on the cross. He stands in their place. He stands in our place as a substitute. And so Jesus was struck down by the rod of God's judgment on the cross. Now the question is, why does that matter for us? Well, first of all, you and I, as we already mentioned, know that the judgment on our lives matters deeply to us. We are thinking about it all the time. It's something that we care deeply about. But also, we are uneasy about how the question of judgment is settled in our lives. We're not sure that we live up to the standard. So there's a dilemma. And how do we deal with the dilemma? Well, I think generally most people deal with it in two ways. One way is through denial. And we say, listen, I don't ever want to hear that I did something wrong. You know, I don't want ever want to feel a sense of guilt. I, you never say anything that would lower my sense of self-esteem. Or, you know, I don't want to hear anything about a judge. So, um, but we all know that if a person refuses to look at their own faults, that's never a good thing. But on the other hand, the other way we deal with it is not by denial, but maybe by self-hatred. And we say, you know what? Yeah, I'm filled with flaws. And we just pummel ourselves with the ways that we failed. Some of you, that's the way that you deal with it. And, and maybe we go back and forth. We pummel ourselves and then we can't handle it, so then we go into denial. And that's how we settle the question of judgment. But the substitution of Jesus, his taking the judgment in our place, allows us to do two things. First, it allows us to be honest. I needed to be judged. So I can be honest, I'm in re I rebel against God. I fail his law. I sin against other people. I can be honest about the real failures in my own heart and in my own life. And um, deep honesty says that I'm actually a way worse person than anyone knows. But that's combined, that honesty is combined with profound love. Right when I thought God would smite me, right when the trial was starting and the rod of judgment was coming and I thought it was going to land on me, Jesus died in my place to forgive me. He embraced me. He washed me. I am of immense value to him. You are of immense value to Jesus. He died in your place. And in the gospel, and it's only in the substitution of Jesus, you can both face the honesty of your life and at the same time know that you are deeply treasured by God and by Jesus. And so when you read the Gospels, in the, you know, the Gospel of John, the opening chapter, the way that John describes Jesus is he says he came with truth and grace, honesty and love. And when your life is defined by honesty and love, the honesty of personal honesty and love of Jesus, it changes you. It transforms the kind of person you are. And one of the images that the Bible uses to describe that transformation is the last image that we see in this passage. So we see the courtroom. We see the substitution. But lastly, we see 
the water. And you see that in this passage that when the rock, Moses strikes the rock, what happens? Refreshment comes out. It's amazing. Water in a desert, in a dry land. You see it there in verse 6. The Lord says, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And of course, when Jesus was, as we mentioned, when he was struck on the cross, it was water, blood and water that came out of his side. And Jesus, this image of water was a famous, favorite image of Jesus. Many of you know the famous story where he met a, a Samaritan woman at a well. And, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans never talked with one another, especially a rabbi talking to a Samaritan, uh, Samaritan woman at a well. And this is a woman that had a tremendous amount of sin in her life, and Jesus Gave a lot, brought a lot of honesty to her life. And yet he said, you know, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water, and I'd give it to you. And he says this, everyone who drinks of this water will be, th talking about the normal water in the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, come to me and drink. That's what having the honesty and love of Jesus in your life is like. It's like cold water in a desert. It revitalizes your body, your energy. It gives you hope for the future, hope for what's ahead, hope, for to, hope to take on the next desert. But then again, Jesus mentions this water again in the Gospel of John. A few chapters later, he's at a feast in Jerusalem. And this is what he says. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this is an amazing thing that Jesus says, okay, you come to him and you drink of his water. It's not only that you're going to be refreshed and you're going to be satisfied, but rivers of living water are going to flow out of you too. And just like Jesus was this rock in the desert for the people of, of the Israelites, you are going to become a rock in people's deserts. And when your life is marked by honesty and love, the honesty of love of Jesus, you're going to show up at difficult times in people's lives. And as you love them and as you listen to them and you accept them, as you speak truth to them, you are going to be refreshment. Rivers of living water are going to flow out of you. That is the amazing picture of what God intends to do in our life when we drink deeply at the well who is Christ. This is what love and honesty, grace and truth do to us. It's like drinking water in a desert. And you will become a source of that for others. This only happens in Jesus. This message, the message of grace and truth of Jesus, is the message of the whole Bible. This simple message. It's in every page. It's in every story. It's in every character, every law, every symbol. All of them point to him. He is the lens by which we read this text. And when we read this text that way, it becomes a source of water to us. Let me close with these words. We're going to sing these words in a moment here. Uh, in the song, I heard the voice of Jesus say, this is what it says, drawing on this theme of living water. 
I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched. My soul revived. 